0: This is a GK Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to Business Bites here on Gary Talks, where this season I'm speaking to international entrepreneurs, leaders, authors, and I'm delighted this week to be joined on the show by Mark Hirschberg, who is an author, he's an MIT instructor, he's a speaker, and he's also the most handsome man in the world. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You've been talking to my mom, I can see.
0: Isn't that an introduction? Mark has written a book called Essential Skills for Success that no one taught you. And for people who have listened to previous podcasts that I've done, you know, often speak about, you know, there's so many skills we need to know in life that unfortunately we don't get to learn in the classroom growing up. Or maybe we don't have the concentration span or the patience. We can be know-it-alls at a certain age as well in our lives. But Mark, you're over in beautiful New York City. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to me on Gary Talks today. Tell me about your work in in MIT and what led you to get involved in writing the book.
1: I've had two parallel careers. When I first graduated MIT as a student, I got into software development. This was during the dot-com era. And I realized that I wanted to move into leadership positions. I wanted to be a CTO, chief technology officer. But as I explored that path, I realized even though I was good at technology as a pretty good programmer, there were a number of skills I would need that no one taught me. Leadership, networking, negotiating, team building, hiring, all these skills. And we're told they're important. People have told us since we were kids, networking, it's so important. But no one actually sits you down and teaches you how to do it. Mm. Now, we didn't have great podcasts like yours back then. (laughs) We had fewer resources. So I was pretty much on my own trying to figure this out. And as I was doing that, MIT had gotten similar feedback from companies. Companies were saying, we want to see these skills in people we hire, not just from MIT, not just college students, not just entry-level people, but everyone we hire, we look for these skills and we can't find it. So when I heard MIT was putting together a program on this, I reached out, I said, I've developed some training material I've used for myself and even for my teams, because these skills help everyone on your team. And I figured I'd just give that to MIT and that will be it. But instead, MIT said, wait, not so fast. Please help us create more content. We love what you've given us. Please help us create more. And by the way, can you help teach? So in parallel to my career building tech startups, which I still do, I've now been teaching for over 20 years at MIT, and that led to the book, The Career Toolkit, The Brain Bump app, and The Speaking, and everything else I do.
0: Excellent. So, I mean, there's so much to dive into, and I know time is limited today, but firstly, what's the difference between a good leader and a good manager?
1: Great question. And this is really subtle. Now, in my book, I have separate chapters on leadership and management because they are separate skills. Yeah. But at the same time, the way I end that section, most leaders, most good leaders manage and good managers lead. So even though we're going to talk about the difference, when you're in the real world doing it, just do it. Don't say, oh, wait, which am I doing today? Now, I would say time is Time's limited, as you said on the show. So I'm going to share my favorite quote that distinguishes them, which comes from, if I'm remembering right, a rear Admiral Grace Hopper. And she said, nobody ever manages men into battle. Mm. Now, that doesn't tell you what it is. But if you think about that quote a bit, you start to get a sense instinctually of what that difference might be.
0: It's so true. And I think that's probably, you know, when I see people on the ground in an organization not happy, it is that thing of it comes from the top because the leader at the top, if you want to have that kind of structural diagram, um, it's, you know, they do create the culture. And it's also important for them to spot things maybe further down the chain if there's toxicity forming within an organization to um, to be an example of how that is dealt with in the company
1: to your point it really comes from the top and one of the most important things a leader can do is set a vision as a manager you're just saying well we need to get this done okay you work on this she's going to work on that and let's coordinate tomorrow and people might buy into it or not your job is just to coordinate and move things forward but as a leader of the company you can't just say well okay, let's just make sure this gets done, that gets done. You have to set forth that larger vision to motivate people. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not leading, you're just managing.
0: And then where do you think people can actually find that vision? Because it's easy to say our vision is we're going to be the best at what we do. But it's very hard to motivate people with just a simplified vision like that. So where can people find a vision that really drives them, and the people working with them.
1: Great question. And even starting with, we're going to be the best, because what does the best mean? If you think about any product line, best might be, well, you are the most premium, expensive version, and you're the best in terms of quality, but you're not accessible to many people. Many people can't afford your product or service. There's something to be said for, we're the cheapest, we're the most accessible, Maybe you want to be the most flexible, the most useful in many cases. So best can even mean different things. Mm. And then this ties to what we're talking about. What does it mean? What's going to motivate people to say we're the best? Well, if it is I take pride and we have the best version of this product on earth, the highest quality, okay, that's going to inspire people. Some people do want to feel we are the best. Others might say this product if we can get into the hands of as many people as possible, it might not be the best version of it in terms of quality or the most durable or most flexible, but we're reaching out and helping so many people. Think, for example, about, let's say, emergency shelters. Now, as shelters go, your home by home much nicer than an emergency shelter. But when there is a crisis and you're saying what we build It's not going to last even a year, but we can get out there and put people in shelters after a crisis, after an earthquake. What kind of impact are we having there? And so it aligns to the goals of the people. As a good leader, you have to listen and understand what motivates your people and then show them how your vision connects to their motivating factors.
0: And do you think it's important then to have a genuine, good, moral Wish within that vision where you really genuinely want to make a difference in the world or make a difference in people's lives? Or can it just be a more colder business approach?
1: The classic leadership question is, is, and they'll usually pick some dictator from the 20th century, is this person a good leader? We can even imagine certain more recent presidents (laughs) as a person, a good leader. And the question is really, does morality play into it? Because if our definition is having that vision, getting people to buy into it, we've seen leaders do that for things many of us consider immoral. And I would argue that in a technical definition that happens to be true, you don't have to have morality in it. That said, one of the chapters in my book is on ethics, because I strongly believe we have to put ethics in our business. And so while you can do that, I would encourage you towards having ethics or morals as a foundation of your business and your vision. That's not saying everything you do has to save the world, but if it's immoral, if it's hurting others, I would, I'd say that that's really not a good thing to do, even if technically it qualifies as a vision.
0: So moving on then to another major topic that you focus on in the book negotiating so i think you know years ago people may not have gone through school all the way up to the age of 18 and even have gone on to college they would have been out of school at the age of 12 or 13 and their education then for the next five six years came from the streets hence the term street wise and i think when you are street wise you have certain skills leadership possibly, but also negotiating skills, survival skills. And I suppose if you go through the the school system where you're a little bit more cared for and looked after and supervised and supported, you don't need to learn those skills. And then you come out of that education system and you don't have them. So again, with negotiation, how do you go about researching? And again, it's one thing reading how to do a negotiation tactic in a book it's a completely different scenario when you're actually face to face with someone where the stakes are high
1: that's a very good point now let's first i'm going to give you a motivation for why you should learn these skills and then we'll talk about different types of negotiation skills the example i give to my students but let's just take your audience let's suppose you're 25 years old And you are looking at a job offer that is $50,000. Instead of just taking that job offer, you've learned to negotiate. So you negotiate for $1,000 more and from $50,000 to $51,000. It's not a big lift. We imagine that's doable. That negotiation will take you 10 minutes, a call, maybe a few emails back and forth. If you do nothing else in your career, You just had that one five, 10-minute negotiation. You just earned yourself $1,000 more for the next 40 years. In 10 minutes, you just got $40,000. That's incredible. Mm. But of course, you're not staying in that job for 40 years. You'll have raises and promotions. You'll negotiate those. So learning to negotiate, it's like compound interest. It just keeps being additive and additive and so the ROI and learning to negotiate is huge. And by the way, this actually applies to the other skills like leadership and networking and communications. It just won't be, oh, I got $1,000 more because I was a better leader in those five minutes. It builds up over time. So it applies to all these skills. Negotiation is the easiest to do the math. Now, you brought up the example of being streetwise. And in fact, we see there's a popular negotiation book Written by a, um, a hostage negotiator and it talks about a lot of streetwise skills, but that's not actually what a lot of business negotiations is. And this is subtle but important because when you think about a hostage negotiation or the example you gave of people on the street, you're standing there, maybe you're in a gang, maybe they're the, the local bullies, and you have right now a situation that's going to get resolved in the next few minutes emotions are high there's that physical threat there's no like timeout mm-hmm. hostage negotiations you can't say listen it's been a long day let's just let's all go home we'll prick <laughs> this up tomorrow morning you also can't say like you know what why don't we compromise you kill two of the hostages send out three everybody wins <laughs> those aren't options but in fact in business negotiations those are options you can compromise and give things up You also can and do take breaks. A lot of negotiations today, in fact, are done through email, are done where we're not necessarily as face-to-face. Now, that's not to say emotions aren't part of it, especially if you're buying or selling a company or your job is on the line or a bonus. It can be emotional, but it's not the same as when you are physically there and your adrenaline is rushing. And so it's important to understand both of those are valid negotiation skills that we should learn because you may have negotiations where it is on the spot, Mm. but some of the techniques used in one are not as applicable to the other. And so it's just important to understand as you learn negotiation skills, which skills you're learning.
0: If someone's going into a meeting and they feel that they're dealing with a client who has the upper hand, you know, maybe that client can take their business elsewhere or, they already have that client on the books and they know that they cannot afford to loot that client and the client is well aware of that. So they really are going in as the underdog. How would you kind of tee someone up to go into a negotiation there?
1: Let me give two pieces of advice. The first, of course, is generally when we are negotiating, you are trying to either strengthen your position or or weaken the position of the other party. So either you make your offering better, or you convince the other party that the alternative options to a deal with you are not as good. Those other companies aren't as good, or you're going to have to take more time to get them up to speed. I already know your business. So those are going to be your your main two strategies. But the better strategy comes from, I'm going to use actually Israeli research. This is from, from terrorism from a different type they found that the best time to stop a terrorist with a bomb is before that terrorist actually puts the bomb on. Once that person is headed towards the market, it's really hard. But if you can stop them months ahead of time, much easier, much lower cost. And when you think about this meeting, when you're going into the meeting and saying, oh, our position's not so good, okay, this is your last minute attempt if a month prior – If three months prior you could say, What can we do today to strengthen our position or weaken the other options? You probably can do so more cheaply or have more options available than what you can do in the two minutes before you walk in the door. In fact, I see this with salespeople who do the, oh, once a year, I'm going to call that client again and just, hey, how's it going? And oh, you're not happy. You should have been proactively looking at that engagement for the past 12 months maybe not every day, but if you're more proactive, it's usually cheaper to take a preventative measure.
0: Excellent. Very good. I feel like I'm in MIT now myself to soaking up all this information and knowledge. You talk about networking and it's something that I personally do not like. So there's obviously an attitude or perspective that I have about networking, but I don't like when I'm in a room where there's a conference on and it's like, OK, everyone head off to the back of the room now and grab a tea or a coffee and network with each other. And it's this kind of forced, I'm going to pitch to you and you're going to pitch to me and I'm probably not interested in what you're doing. So I'm going to be scanning the room to see if there's someone more interesting to talk to and you're probably going to be doing the same. And it's just this forced awkwardness upon people. And uh, certainly over the last few years th- with remote working and in COVID and so on. We've gotten used to more communication being through emails, voice memos, and so on that we haven't had to, we've we've lost our practice of that in-person conversation and networking. So for someone who hates networking based on those reasons, what would you say to someone? Because I know there's benefits in networking, but how, how would you kind of prepare someone to go in to a networking event?
1: I also hate what you're describing. We're going to reframe how you're looking at networking. Networking is really about relationship building more than anything else. Now, unfortunately, people see it as transactional. How do I sell to you? What's about building relationships? So let's use as an analogy a different type of relationship we're all familiar with. Let's think dating. Now, what happens if you're going on a first date? If you sit down and say, Okay. Hey, nice to meet you. So let's go through this. So, uh, when do you want to get married? How many kids? You know, where do you want to live? Let's figure out if we align or not. <laughs> what a horrible date. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: On the I'm other sure hand, they like,
0: exist as well. Those dates.
1: <laughs> but if it's okay, hey, let's sit down. You know, tell me about yourself. Oh, hey, you grew up here. That's really interesting. Oh, this is what I do as a hobby. You like that too? Great. Let's just learn about each other. And some dates can lead to future dates and marriage. Some go nowhere. I was actually having dinner last night with a woman. We went on a date. And after a date, I said, Listen, I'm not feeling the chemistry, but you seem like a great person and we've got some things in common. Let's stay in touch. And so I looked at, let's just meet. I'm not trying to sell you on marrying me, just let's meet and see where things go. And when we go into these conferences and say, Let's network, it's not about selling. It's about, there's a bunch of interesting people here. Let me meet them. And you already know you have one thing in common. If you're at this event, there is something you have in common. So it's the people who go in saying, okay, how do I close a sale? Or the ones saying, hey, nice to meet you. Give me your business card. Here's my card. Okay, great. I'll be in touch. Next. Yeah, yeah. Those are the ones who drive me nuts. But the ones who say, hey, great to meet you. Tell me about yourself. You're interesting in some way. I just don't know how yet, but I want to get to know you. Now we're building relationships and that's very natural for humans.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I like that. So it's to avoid the speed dating scenario and just work on growing the relationship.
1: Exactly. Not with any clear objective. Meet someone. Maybe you will get a sale out of it down the road. Maybe not. Maybe something else. But the journey, not the destination, is the goal in that relationship building.
0: So I know you mentioned communication as well and a few other things, but what do you think are important for people when starting out in business or even trying to upskill and grow business for themselves?
1: It will vary depending on who you are and your skill set, because for some people, maybe you have a lot of people working for you and your leadership skills need help. For others, you might be on your own, so leadership's less of an issue, but maybe that negotiation's important because you have lots of deals going on or critical, complex deals. And in fact, the way the book is written, you don't have to read it front to back. You can jump right to chapter eight and go right to networking because that might be the skill you need to work on. Skip one to seven. Now, I would say the most important thing is to understand where you are and what your needs are. And this is why chapter one in the book is on career planning. By the way, even if you are an entrepreneur, even if you run your own business, you need a career plan. Now, for most of us in corporate offices, we think, well, how do I get that promotion? And after that, and where do I want to be in 10 years? If you run your own business, your title probably won't change. Although even then, we know people say, I want to sell my business, start another, or I want to move to be a board member. But even if you say, I want to run this business for the next 40 years, your title is not changing, but your skill set will definitely need to. You want your business to grow and evolve, and you need skills to evolve with it. So your career plan is about, how am I going to evolve? And this goes back to, what are your needs? And importantly, the sequence of them. I give the example of January 1st, those New Year's resolutions. If you wake up January 1st and say, okay, I'm going to quit smoking and eat healthier and stop drinking and wake up early and go to the gym and read more, you're going to fail before noon mm. that day. Instead, you say, I'm going to do one of these things. I'm going to work on quitting smoking. Still going to drink. My eating's not going to be great. Forget the gym. Just focus on quitting smoking. It's going to take you a couple months before you build that habit and now you don't need as much energy for it. And at that point, you can take on the next challenge. And that's what we want to do with these skills. And I recommend having these plans, the short term, where you're doing six to 12 months versus intermediate, maybe next few years out or longer term plans. Knowing those can adjust because this way we can focus on just one thing at a time and not get distracted and do a bad job with each of them.
0: That's brilliant. How have you noticed your students evolve now over the last few years at MIT?
1: The last few years have been particularly challenging. A few years ago, we're recording this in 2023. A few years ago, we were virtual, which was super challenging, particularly for teaching these skills because the class is not a lecture-based class and is interactive. And by the way, as you work on these skills, it's like learning cricket. You can read a book on cricket, but if you're not out there on the pitch playing, you're just not going to develop those skills. And that's true for all of this. So the virtual class wasn't great, and now our students are coming back. And one of the challenges we're seeing at MIT, and I've heard this universally from other schools and from people who are hiring younger folks, a lot of people, the social skills just aren't quite there. A lot of people, it atrophied, it didn't fully develop. I remember, in fact, when I first started going on dates after being locked up, I remember how awkward I was on dates because I hadn't seen people face-to-face mm-hmm. in a while. So we, we need, we as a society, I think need to actively work to develop most people, even those of us our age, older, can still probably use some polishing on those skills. Something I encourage offices to do, many of us are in hybrid workplaces. We are in the office a few days a week, we're home a few others. During the time in the office, that's when we really want to focus more on the social interaction. And this seems counterintuitive, and especially the managers. The managers are the ones saying, no, no, I want you in the office because I need to see you working. Yeah. yeah. If I see you hanging out chatting, I'm not seeing you work and that's what I need to see. That's why I want you here. But in fact, it's when we're together, that's the opportunity to have those hallway conversations to say, hey, why don't we take a break and go out and grab a coffee for 30 minutes? That's what's harder to do when we're at home. Whereas at home, we can write the report or do the financial analysis or whatever we do. So during the days in the office, we want to overemphasize those social interactions, even though it can feel a little hard, especially to those of you who are leaders and managers where you say, I want to see you work, focus on having them engage and connect socially and interact with each other to rebuild those skills.
0: Yeah, because I think if someone's going to spend possibly even an hour commuting to the workplace and an hour commuting back home in traffic in the evening, you want that workplace to be good for them to go to in the first place. So fun is important.
1: <laughs> fun. And you need to have the workplace necessary for types of work that can't be done at home to justify the cost of those two hours commuting.
0: Finally, for someone starting off in business, no matter what age they are, and they're going to they have an idea for a business and they just want to give it a shot, of course. There might be fully sure of themselves or have that confidence yet that this will be a success. What are the kind of the early skill sets that they need to maybe focus on?
1: I would say create a strong network because if you're early, there's probably a bunch of things you don't know. All of us have things we don't know. It might be more earlier in your career, but your network is there to help fill in those gaps. If you don't know much about accounting, it would be helpful to have people in your network who know about accounting, whether they're accountants themselves or even just they've run businesses. They can teach you some basics of, here's how to think about creating a p profit and loss, and how you need to think about it, or what metrics I use in my business to help stay on top of the financials or other things. If you're not good at selling, Maybe there's someone you know who is good at selling and you can sit down with her and say, teach me a few things or can you listen to this call and tell me what I'm doing wrong? So our network really helps fill in the gaps and we want that extensive network. This is even more important to the example you gave when you're younger and probably have more of those gaps.
0: That's brilliant. And even just having someone listen to you making a sales call, I mean, the amount of wisdom that'll be picked up out of that conversation that can be relayed back to you because you're you're in the zone at the time making you know those early sales calls uh where you might appear calm on the outside but inside there's 101 things going through your head and yeah we never think of how we actually come across we're we're too busy processing what we're saying and looking for that end result
1: if you think about sports for example when we first learn sports when we're learning football and we're on the field we're just in the moment. How do I think about, how do I pass it over to Gary? How, how do I make that happen? But when you are more comfortable on the field and you've got that court sense, it's a basketball term, I'm not sure the equivalent in, in football, but you're now there, you can kind of step back, be meta and say, I see what's happening on the field. Oh, I recognize what the other team is doing and I'm going to adjust my practice to do it. We can now be self-reflective in the moment, but that takes years of experience. And It's the same thing in this sales call we gave or other things we do in our leadership or other interactions. Very experienced people can be in the middle of doing the sales pitch and thinking, "Ah, I'm noticing my potential customer. They're not resonating with this. I need to adjust my sales strategy. I need to do something. You can be reflective in the moment, but most of us more junior in our career, we're, we're in that okay, I just got to do the mechanics and we can't be reflective in the moment. And that's where we have coaches early in our sports careers and having the equivalent of a coach, whether formal or informal as a mentor can really help us start to get that guidance before we reach that senior level where we can do our own type of feedback.
0: So Mark, just before we finish up, can you tell us again, the name of your book, the website, and also the app?
1: The book is The Career Toolkit, and you can find it on my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book, see where to buy it, Amazon, elsewhere. There's also a number of completely free resources on the resources page. Now, there's also the free app, the Brain Bump app, free on Android and iPhone. And this app has all the tips from my book from other books, from podcasts, from other sources. We're constantly adding new tips to it, including, by the way, all the networking tips that we've been talking about. So the next time you're at an event, you've got the Brain Bump app in your pocket. You pull it out, you tap networking as the topic, and there's everything you need to know two minutes before you walk into the room and now you're ready to network. So that is Brain Bump and you can go to the website brainbumpapp.com.
0: Brilliant, Mark. Thanks so much. And, Look forward to meeting up with you for a beer in New York, hopefully
1: next year. Wonderful.